Um, so there, that's announcements, that's done. Um, I can almost start preaching. I've got to give a little more intro. So uh, as most of you have probably noticed, I've, I've really stepped back from preaching over the last year. Um, that is intentional on my part. Um, the elders did not ask me to do that. I've kind of myself pulled back a bit um, for a number of reasons, primarily to let Rich kind of guide us for a season. I think he's done a really good job at that, and I've really appreciated that. And also to really focus on other areas of ministry. Uh, a lot of it admin right now is just some different things have changed throughout the years as different pastors are here and there, um, overseeing discipleship, things of this nature. Um, but really evaluating this last year and evaluating my gifts and my passions. And after talking to a couple elders, uh, the encouragement has been that I will be uh, a regular part of preaching again here. So I'm pretty excited for that. I think that's uh, something that definitely uh, fuels my heart and my passion. And so thank you, uh, I guess, John, for really encouraging me to get my butt back up here and to make sure that I'm doing... uh, what I feel God has primarily gifted me in, and that's communicating God's word. Um, I, I will say it's weird, and I told my wife this morning, I said, man, I'm anxious this morning. Uh, it's, I haven't preached since May. And that, for, for me, it's, it's not about me and preaching, but I just, it's, that's by far the longest I've gone since I'm a grown man. Uh, and before that was the farthest I've gone. And so I'm a bit rusty, so just hang in there with me. I'm going to go about 68 minutes today, so I just got a lot... <laughs> A lot of pent-up stuff, so here we are. Um, So I'll be preaching about once a month, sometimes twice a month. This month it's twice. Uh, And here's the part where I need you to really hang in with me. I'm starting a series uh, today that is going to carry for a long time. But we're going to pick it up like once a month. Uh, and, And so if you're absent, you can podcast it. There's a hundred ways to watch it. You can just read the book, um, but just hang with me. It's going to be a little bit tricky, but John said, we have a pretty smart congregation. I think they can hang. I had questions about that, but he said they could do it. So uh, yeah, we're going to start something and just pick it up. And Rich is going to keep going right through Sermon on the Mount, which uh, has been great. So he's going to carry that on. He'll be doing the lion's share of preaching and I'll be sneaking in uh, a bit more regularly. Um, Let's pray, uh, and then we're going to jump right in. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, as John said this morning, being able to sing together as a congregation and lift up your name is great. God, my heart uh, longs for these days when, God, my affections are so, so just right on the edge, and I so want to be near you and be with you. And God, we, we sing your grace is enough. God, we, we sing that my, my heart is prone to wander, but you, you hold me tight and you hold me close. And Jesus, we're thankful for that. Your grace is enough. God, we can, we can proclaim that. We can come here as, as dirty, broken people and, and recognize that you're a God who loves his people no matter where they are. God, it, you are so great and so kind. It's kind enough to give us your word. God, your word this morning is, is one that has just been coming alive to me over the last couple months, couple weeks here as I've really honed in on, on this book. I thank you for it. God, I pray that in a, in a book where we don't see your face and your name blatantly, God, we see you. And that is true amongst many of our lives. Many of us probably struggle seeing you day in and day out, but God, you are there. Your providential hand guides and moves and works throughout all of history, including today. So God, I pray that we would see you today, though. In Jesus, more than anything, we want 
to pursue you. Jesus, you are the reason we are here. God, I pray that we don't get caught up in the program and the people. Those are good. These are means through which you work. But Jesus, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you and you alone. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I want to I start this morning by asking a question. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. It's kind of weird when you have to raise your hand. You feel like there's pressure from other people. Um, but I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it in your mind. Uh, it's kind of a simple question, but honestly, it's, it's a little bit complex as well. So the question is this. I'm going to give you five, ten seconds to think about it. Have you seen God? I want you to answer out loud. I don't you raise your hand. I just want you to think about it. Have you seen God? A lot of you are giving me really weird looks. That's okay. Have you seen him? Uh, again, it's a complex question. You know, well, what do you mean by seen God? I mean, I, I've experienced or I, I read about or I hear about or I feel like he's with me and, and I know people who've, who've had miracles happen, but have I seen God? I think it's an important question and honestly, I think it's a question that, that I think about regularly. Like, what does it look like to know God? What does it look like to see God? What does it look like to experience God? And, and another thing that I, that I honestly get fairly frustrated over occasionally is how different, to be honest, most people's engagement with God in the scriptures is than mine. Now, I wanna, I wanna just show you a few things. You're, you don't have to jump there in the text. We'll have some text to get into. But just follow me for a minute. So Genesis 2, verse 16, just just listen. We read this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Jump down to verse 9 of chapter 3. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Again in verse 11, he said, and then in verse 12, the man said this, and and God in verse uh, 13, the Lord God said to the woman, and he jumped down to Genesis 6, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. And Genesis 12, the Lord God said to Abram, and Genesis 26, the Lord appeared to him, that is Isaac, And he said, don't go down to Egypt, dwell in the land in which I tell you. In Genesis 35, God appeared to Jacob again. I think you get the point, right? God is appearing to people. He is is saying things to people. He's talking to people. Uh, Every major prophet, every minor prophet, most people you read in the Bible hear from God. They've seen him. They, They hear his voice. And then you get to the New Testament, you get incarnation, you get Jesus Christ, the second figure of the Godhead, coming to earth and and talking to people. He's a physical person in the same way that I am talking to you right now. Jesus lived and breathed and talked and, and he could be seen. And then after he left, you've got... Many people, you've got people like Paul who, who heard the voice of God. Remember on the road to Damascus? Who is this? This is Jesus whom you are persecuting. You've got Barnabas and Silas, uh, Timothy. May, many people who, who, even though they didn't see God, they very uh, much firsthand experienced God. They experienced miracles uh, unlike some that probably, I would say, a majority of us don't experience. Perhaps you've spent time thinking about this. Perhaps you've thought, man, this, it seems a bit unfair, right? Like, why, why is God moving and working in, in a certain part of the world? And why is God showing himself and speaking to some people? But what about everyone else? And quite honestly, what about me? Why, why is it that very often I, I don't see and feel and hear God? 
especially in the same way that people in the Old Testament saw and heard and felt God. Is God present or is he absent? I think it's a big question. I think that we come into this building here and and we all put on our happy face and we assume, we want to, okay, yeah, I see God all the time. He's working in my life. But, But day in, day out, do we actually see the presence of God? Do we feel the Lord working? Where is God and what is he doing? I think it's a very important question to ask in our daily lives. Where is God? What is he doing? Over the next several months, we're going to be in the book of Esther, a book in which the name of God is altogether conspicuously absent. You don't see God in this book by name one time. Uh, this story is just that. It's a story. It's narrative. It's not didactic. It's, there's no commentary. There, there's no voice of God that you can clearly, blatantly see. There's no, this is right, this is wrong. It is clearly just a narrative. And the question is, is God in the book or is he absent? Is God moving or is God working? In a story where God seems to be altogether absent, what is God doing? I think it's a very important question that we need to ask because look at most of our lives, right? Look at your life on a daily basis. You wake up, you struggle, you hit the alarm, like, I don't know what you do in the morning. Maybe you go for a run. Maybe you go watch some TV. You eat something. You get to work. You're at work. You're hanging out with coworkers. You're trying to work, hiding from the boss, doing whatever you do. I don't know. You get some lunch. You go home, uh, hang out for a couple hours, take a long nap. I don't know what your day looks like. But by and large, let's be honest. You, you get home. You eat dinner. You hang out with your family. And the question is, where's God? And the reality is most of your neighbors and most of your friends, particularly in this city, would say, he's not around. Look at your life. I I don't see God. Do you see God? I I see your life. I see you moving and working and having your being. But where's God in all of this? Very much like the story of Esther, the name of God is not seen. But is God moving? And is God working? Is God moving and working in our city? 90% of the people would say he does not exist. 90% of the people in our city would say we don't need him, we don't see him, we don't feel him. Why are you Christians any different? Because I don't see anything much different in your life. This is why the book of Esther, I think, will be fascinating. Chapter 1, verse 1. Turn to the book of Esther. Um, Sorry, I should have given you a heads up. And I'm actually going to ask you to stand. I've, I've I think I'm getting into this habit. I like it. So we're going to read the word of God and you can stand. We're going to read the first nine verses. And I'm going to go real crazy here. Afterwards, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, thanks be to God. Fantastic. This is good. We're getting some, uh, some roots in this building. Esther chapter one, verse one. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and nobles and governors of the provinces were there before him. And he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. 
And when these days were complete, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, great, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders for all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can take a seat. Um, For reasons that I just mentioned, this is perhaps, um, not entirely, but perhaps one of the most difficult books of the Bible to preach through. Uh, Primarily because it is just that. It's a story. It's simply narrative. And so any piece of application that we're going to pull out of it is not application that you directly pull out of the text. It is application that the preacher pulls out. Um, Many commentators that I've read suggest not preaching through this book. Uh, not preaching uh, particularly verse by verse at all, but maybe pick some big themes and, and kind of hit things. And, and I've actually found that to be true because many of the preachers who I've followed throughout the year haven't, in fact, preached through this book. So it's, it's quite fascinating. It's quite interesting. Uh, but I believe our Bible is clear. Uh, Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And I find Esther to give a lot of hope. Because I find Esther to be very much like the day and time that we live, where maybe God might on the surface seem to be altogether conspicuously absent. In fact, through the providence of God, God is moving and working in massive ways, ways that might just not be on the surface. And so it gives us a little bit more of a challenge to figure out how God is working in this story and I think in the story of many of our lives. The, the author... Um, of which we do not know. We don't know who it is. Many suggest that perhaps it is Mordecai, a character we'll meet in a couple weeks here. Uh, Perhaps it is a compilation of two or three different authors. But the fact of the matter is, uh, we do not know who it is. Uh, The author tells us, though, right up front, uh, in verse 1, of a great king. Uh, In the days of Ahasuerus, the the Ahasuerus who reigned from from India to Ethiopia, in these days when King Ahasuerus sat on his throne, in the royal city of Susa, the citadel. So immediately we're introduced to a person. Uh, This is very much a historical text. It reads like a historical text, like Joshua or Judges or 1 and 2 Samuel. This does not read like a parable. It doesn't read like uh, just kind of an ancient story. This is a a book of historicity. Uh, It gives very specific times, very specific uh, dates and people and location. We're told that it is in Susa, and we're told uh, who it starts with. The main character uh, in the opening chapter is this guy, um, Ahasuerus. We actually know a ton about Ahasuerus. We know a ton about this time period in history. Uh, I don't know if you remember back in eighth grade when you took humanities, but there was a Greek historian, Herodotus, who wrote a lot of extra-biblical content on the Persian Empire. So we know all kinds of things about Persia, which is quite fascinating. Immediately, like I said, we're introduced to this king, King Ahasuerus. Anyone off the top of your head remember his Greek name? So Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. Greek name is... 
Xerxes. Many of you guys know that. You've been in church a while or you've watched the movie 300 many times. Um, A lot of my study, I've actually just been in my office watching the movie 300, which again was inspiration for my beard. Um, Xerxes, uh, I I can't recommend watching the movie 300. Uh, It's a bit violent and sensual. But I'll I'll honestly say this, it's significantly less violent and sensual than the book of Esther. Uh, The book of Esther is scandalous on many, many levels. I'm going to try to keep it PG-13 in here because occasionally my daughter's in here and there's other kids, so we're going to keep it uh, scandalous. But if you actually study what's really going on, it's it's quite the book. They, They don't hold anything back. So Xerxes, he ruled from the Persian Empire uh, in what is modern-day Iran. I think that's very interesting. We read a lot about Iran and what's going on right now. And so our study over the next couple months, perhaps year, will be in the center of current-day Iran. Uh, That is the city of Susa. He is the, uh, the king of all of Persia. Persia, let's see, from the east uh, is in modern-day Pakistan, all the way to northern Africa and Sudan, all the way to the western border of Greece, kind of encircling the northern part of Greece as well. So big, big territory is the territory of Persia. Uh, Xerxes was given the land by his father Darius. His father Darius was given the land by his father Cyrus. You'll remember Cyrus for a number of reasons, uh, particularly as uh, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and Cyrus decreed that many of the Jews were able to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, Those of you who who are interested in that might remember, and I'll I'll share a lot more of that uh, in the time to come. But uh, again, we know a lot that was going on during this time period. Xerxes ruled from 486 to 465 BC, uh, a time period in which there is so much going on on the, on the scale of uh, that area. Um, f- again, for those of you who, who have been in church a while and, and who this is kind of in your wheelhouse, uh, I'm going to share just a second where we were in the time scale of the Old Testament. Uh, if, if this doesn't make sense to you at all, don't worry. I'll explain it all a little bit more later. Um, but in the Old Testament, the book of Esther is, is really towards the very end of, of the history. Uh, so if, if your book was chronological by date, Esther would be um, the last or kind of the second to last book before the New Testament. So you've got Ezra, who, who would have been in the time period in which uh, the Jews were able to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And then I believe Esther kind of fits right in between Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, there is a little bit of discussion about where they fit in there, but it's right in that time period. So the temple's built. Nehemiah later comes back, builds the wall around the temple. But Esther takes place not in Jerusalem. Esther takes place with the Jews who did not go back. And so that's where Xerxes is reigning during that time period. Uh, around uh, other places, Confucius was born, the Chinese philosopher, during this time period. Percoles started kind of ancient democracy in Greece. This is kind of the, the golden age in Athens. Uh, Pythagoras was giving geometry students headaches during this time. Uh, Socrates, the philosopher, was born 470. So a lot of big names that most of us might uh, kind of just ring a bell with were going on right during the reign of Xerxes. Again, Xerxes was a Persian king. Uh, He had rule over the Jewish people. The Jewish people were a bit scattered. Many of them went back to Jerusalem, but a huge constituency of them stayed, and over both, Xerxes had reign. Persia was the superpower of the world. Let's pick it up in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. 
The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. When he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So this is a pretty epic party, right? I love parties. I, I'm just going to be honest. I, I, I like to party. It's, it's a good time. I want you to think about when the last time you planned a party. Think about a party. And I'm not talking like, oh, your neighbors happen to come over. and Oh, what are we going to do? Let's, let's fry up some chicken. No, I'm talking like a big party. When did you throw a big party? August 8th. All right, that's good. Right? Was it a wedding? It was, right? So most of us, when we think of throwing a big party... We think of a wedding, right? You've got a year's worth of preparation very often. You're spending tens of thousands of dollars, perhaps. You're, you're spending hours and hours and hours of prep. You've got mom and daughter just fighting, figuring out what's going on. No, there, there's a lot of peace um, in some families. Um, but my goodness, there's so much to figure out. You've got the guest looks. You've got the cake. You've got the decorations. You're trying to figure out who you don't want there and how you can easily make sure they don't know. But that's weird because Facebook's out. And I mean, there's just so many things going on. And for what? For a party that lasts I mean, I've been in a lot of weddings. Like the ceremony, I've been in some that are five minutes. I've been in ceremonies that are an hour and you're just dying in the heat. But the whole thing lasts four, five, six hours. Like if the, if the DJ is really good and the bar's open, like eight, nine, 10, 12 hours, like a year's worth of planning, tens of thousands of dollars, a couple hundred people usually, three, four, five hundred occasionally, if you know a lot of people, for one day. Now, let's look at Xerxes' party. First of all, it's 180 days. <laughs> that is a serious rage. 180 days. I mean, like I said, I, I like a party, but 180 days. <laughs> that is no joke. Um, you'll notice quickly that I think something very important is missing. Uh, you'll see this in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Um, that's a separate party. So you've got a party, 180 days of just men. Now, I, I can't give away all the secrets to, to man world, but typically when women are not present, things don't go as well. All right, I'll just say that 180 days, no women present. Well, That's not entirely true. No women guests present. There were women who were there for entertainment. And again, we're not talking about your your cute guest list of a couple hundred. Uh, Most historians will say that this is a party of upwards of 10, 12 to 15,000 people. And, and again, we're also not talking about, you know, your nice grocer, you know, your accountant with the V-neck, tucked in sweater, bringing a Cosmo. Who are these men? These are military men, and these are government officials. So in your mind, 10, 12, 15,000 military guys, six months, no women, open bar. Quite the scene. Let's read about the location. Verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry 
marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels and vessels of different kinds. And royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. You ever been in that place where, where you walk into a house and it's, you're just, oh, baby. You ever been there? Um, last weekend, my family was in Bend. Uh, we gather with 18 of our best friends every year. For the first couple of years, uh, we, we all crammed into a two-bedroom apartment, uh, which was fabulous, but also disgusting at the same time. Well, over a decade or so, most of my friends' tax brackets have increased a little bit. And so this year, we end up at Bend, and uh, we, we go to what I considered a palace on the river. Um, first of all, it's every man's dream. You walk up, and it's a six-car garage. Now, it doesn't get better than that for me. Like, I don't care about the house. Like, if you have a six-car garage, you're doing okay. Right, six-car garage, you got 10 mountain bikes. I'm not exaggerating. 10 mountain bikes hanging on the wall. You've got a ping-pong table in the garage. You've got speakers. You've got lots of ice chests. I mean, you just got all kinds of things in this garage. It is fantastic. And then you go into the actual house. And my goodness, the, the kitchen was six times bigger than my entire house. I mean, just granite like this thick on the countertops. I mean, the beams, we had more beams in that house than were in this entire sanctuary. I mean, you're overlooking the river. You've got your own dock. You've got 10 stand-up paddle boards and kayaks. And you've got your, your hot tub. And there's fireplaces and pool tables. And, and you name it, it was there. The first evening, my, my favorite thing in this house, we're hanging out, and my friend found uh, what I just call kind of a, a magic box. It's about this big. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the magic box. Uh, about this big, and it's under the cabinet uh, on the floor in the kitchen. And there's a magic button, and when you push the magic button, as you're sweeping, it sucks all the stuff you're sweeping and just takes it away. I mean, it's, this is incredible. <laughs> I want one of these magic boxes. I... I hate sweeping primarily because I don't like the dustpan. I think that part's nasty. You know, you're getting down there and there's just all the dust and hair. And, and I got two kids and no dog. So there's just, it's gross. But this magic box, you just sweep it under the counter and it's gone forever. It's incredible. <laughs> Maybe Lars can find me one someday. I don't know. That would be great. And let's be honest, that was child's play compared to Sousa. I mean, Nothing. You got a palace that's holding 10,000 people. I love the description of it in the book of Esther. Pillars, solid pillars of marble. I mean, this isn't like your four by four wrapped in plywood with a couple pieces of slate slapped on it. Solid marble pillars. My, my favorite of all the description is gold couches, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you've made it. When you've got enough gold, like, what should I do with this? Maybe I will sit on it. We can make a couch out of it. I mean, he, he's doing okay. Gold couches. And then came the wine. Uh, again, this isn't like, let's run to Bymart and find a bottle real quick before our neighbors come over. This is, this is royal wine. All served in individually created, handcrafted gold vessels. The, the author specifically says that. He doesn't just say, these are golden vessels. He says, vessels of different kinds. Right? So this isn't like your cheap crystal from Crate and Barrel. This is handcrafted gold vessels. Everyone gets vessels of different kinds 
for royal wine for your six-month party with no women present. I need to stop with the description here before I have to fire myself. But you can fill in the rest. Right? What is this party? What in the world is going on at this party? Today I want to ask why, though. All of this is to say why. What's he doing here? Why, Why is Xerxes throwing this party? On the western border of Persia, uh, as I described earlier, was Greece. Uh, Xerxes' dad, Darius, uh, was defeated at Greece. He tried to conquer Greece. He, he didn't think he had enough land, didn't think his kingdom was big enough, and so he wanted Greece also. Well, Xerxes wanted what his dad could not have, and he thought, I could conquer Greece. And so most historians believe, not everyone, most believe that this party was a party to display his greatness, his glory, his riches, his wealth, to get people to follow him. So this party, it actually says it in the text itself, is to show his power, to show his wealth, to show his glory. Verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory... And the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many, many days. He threw a party and he said, come look at my life. Look at how good this is. Do you want to follow me? If there was anyone to ever follow, it would be me. Look at what I have. Let me share with you so that you will be in awe of me. Look at how great I am. The riches of his glory. If there was ever a man in the history of the world to be an egomaniac, it probably would have been Xerxes. He had everything. Later, when Alexander the Great, about 100 years after him, when, when he conquered the Persians, it is stated that there were 1,200 tons of gold and silver bullion found in his palace. I did quick math on that. You take our parking lot, you fill it up, you double it, you take that number of cars, the weight of that number of cars is how much gold and silver bullion were there. On top of that, you add another 270 tons of minted gold coins. Xerxes is going, I'm good. Check it out, look what I have. Yeah, six months, no big deal, ain't no thing. You you, want to see swag? I have swag, I've got a lot of it. Come check out my glory. I, I hate to say this, but I think we have the same heart. I think most people, starting with myself, have the same heart. Now, I will never have the swag that he has. I will never have the opulence. I will never have the wealth. Herodotus won't write about how tall and handsome I am. But most of us have the same heart. While most of us cannot afford to throw a six-month party, nevertheless, an open bar party for six months, we do this all the time, don't we? little thing called the internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look what I have. Look at my life. Look at me. Look at my glory. And even if you don't actually do it, don't you do it in your mind? Even if it's not physically there, like, man, look at how good I am. Look at the adventures I've been on. Let me drop the name of this place that I've been to. You know, I see it all the time. Look at this adventure picture. Maybe I'll even throw a Bible verse on there, but I really want you to know that I was there because I'm important, and I want you to see my glory. Much of our lives, I think, much of our minds are very much like Xerxes. Look at my glory. 
Look at the life I have. Look at my car. Look at my shoes. Look at my shirt. Look at the things I have. And the party goes on and on and on. But like the future readers of the history books of our lives, what's really interesting is that while the people read the book of Esther, while they were reading this, as Xerxes was throwing his party, showing the greatness of who he was, something had happened. Xerxes had died. So the readers of this are reading this and they're going, I guess you were great at one point in time, but you're dead. You don't really matter anymore. You were assassinated by one of your own men in your bed while you were sleeping. No one's following you anymore. So your whole life devoted to yourself, to your power, to your rule, to the, to the greatness of who you are, it's, it's over. You're dead. And I think that many of us in the same way when we get to a point where someone's reading about the history book of our lives, we too will be dead. But as we're living and as we're having our being, I, I want to challenge us. Whose glory are we committed to? So I think we've got two options. I think option number one is like Xerxes, we can be committed to our own glory. I think that we can give a life devoted to, to making our lives known, to making people want to be like us, to showing off what we have, showing off what we've done. Ultimately, I, I do believe that a lot of this has to do with the American dream. I think if you were to boil down the American dream, it is a life devoted to one's own glory. Am I not right? I mean, you ask most people, what is the American dream? The American dream, quite honestly, I believe is this, to not have a boss. To be able to wake up every day and do exactly what you want to do. That's why we chase retirement, many of us. What are you going to do in retirement? I don't care because I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Is that not a pursuit of our own glory? I think we have countless examples of people throughout history who have pursued their own glory. I'll start with my favorite. I've shared with him. I shared him with you many times. This is Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2. Solomon says this. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And if you don't want to take scripture for it, I'll, I'll give you another example. Marcus Person uh, created Minecraft. Some of you young people know what Minecraft is. It's a game. He sold it to Microsoft last year for $2.5 billion. A little pocket change in his back pocket, $2.5 billion. Uh, last year, he bought himself a mansion, $70 million mansion. Uh, I think it's actually fabulous because in this mansion, there, there's a wall that's entirely filled with candy. If you're going to spend $70 million on a mansion, I think you deserve a wall full of candy. Um, two weeks ago, he wrote out a series of tweets, uh, of which most of them I'm not going to read uh, for censorship, but I will read two of his tweets. This is a guy who sold his company for $2.5 billion. August 29th, he, he tweeted this. He said, The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. He wrote this a couple hours later. He says, Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want to do, and I've never felt more isolated. See, when you devote your life to your own glory, it is a wasted life. It's an absolutely wasted life. I would plead with you, do not devote your life to your own glory, which leads us with only one other option. 
Devote your life to the glory of someone else. Now, there are a lot of options. We can glorify a lot of different people out there. Culture does it all the time. Maybe it's a, a quarterback who's going to play this Sunday. Maybe it's a movie star. Maybe it's an actress. Maybe it's a corporate executive. Maybe it's a king like Xerxes. But in the end, every single one of them will fail you. Maybe it's a pastor you love. They'll fail you too. If you get to know them well enough, if you get to know their spouse, they'll tell you. They're broken. They're messed up. They're, they're a person. And in the end, they will die and they will be forgotten. But there is one king who did not die. Only one. Only one person in the entire history of the world who did not die forever who is a king. But this king is not like Xerxes. Uh, This king is far different than Xerxes, far more powerful, far greater than Xerxes. Jesus had the entire world, not only the world, the universe, he created it like that by speaking. He had a throne. He has a throne. Xerxes had an army of perhaps over a million, they say. He had a personal bodyguard of 10,000 called the Immortals. Jesus said, if I wanted to, at the snap of a finger, I could have legions and legions of angels. But Jesus did not stay on his throne. He did not come and say, hey, come look at my wealth, look at my opulence. He got off of his throne and he came to this earth. To a very poor working class family. And he gave his life not to say, look what I have, look what I can collect. Would you guys want to see how great I am? No, he gave his life to serve to the point where he gave his life and hung on a tree for you and I. Jesus is a much, much better king. If you're going to devote your life to anyone's glory, I, I beg you, do not devote it to your own. You'll be forgotten. No one will remember you in 100 years. That's a promise. Devote your life to a king who still reigns. Not a king who will die. Not a country who eventually will be taken over. I didn't say that too loud. But every, every country in the history of the world eventually gets taken over by someone. Jesus' kingdom lasts forever. Jesus came to give us life. He came to give us a better kingdom. He came to rule and reign as a true king. He came to die for us so that we will have eternal life with him. And so my plea, as I wrap this up right now, is that as this year begins, that we would be devoted to a king and a kingdom that is eternal and that lasts forever. It is very easy to get caught up in the kingdom of this world. It's very easy to get caught up in our own glory. It's very easy to say, you know, I'm going to guard my own time because I need to watch my kingdom. But Jesus says, devote your lives to things that are eternal. Devote your lives to a kingdom that lasts far beyond this world. And it's, it's easy here to fill up our time seeking our own glory, isn't it? But my challenge would be, look at your time. Look at how you're spending your life. Are you filling your life with things that are eternal? Simple little challenge. Go home this week. Write, it, write out your life on a piece of paper. Most of us can do that in 10 minutes. What does your life look like day in, day out? And make a mark on there. What's eternal? What's eternal in my life? It doesn't mean you can come home and say, okay, don't have to do the dishes anymore. It's not eternal. Those things are important. But I think we can focus our primary energy on things that are eternal. And that starts right here with being known and belonging here. 
serving being a part of our church as we move forward in 2015, 2016. Serving a king whose kingdom lasts forever. You think we could do that this year? I think we can. I think we can devote our lives to things that matter. And I would encourage us and pray, oh my goodness, God, give us a passion for your kingdom that lasts forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to be devoted to you and your kingdom more than us and our kingdoms. God, we've got so many Xerxes of this world saying, come look at my kingdom. God, I've got a heart that says, come look at mine. Look at my throne, look at my house, look at my stuff, look at me. But that'll all be forgotten, and that'll be a life wasted. And Jesus, my, my hope and my prayer is that I would be a man who seeks you and your kingdom. You're a better king. Jesus, you've given us life, and you've given us eternity. Jesus, as we take our time now to go to the table and remember that every single week, I pray that as we take the cup, And as we remember the blood that you shed for us and we take the bread and we remember your body given for us, Jesus, that we would see both of those things in our hands and we'd say, Jesus, I want to give my life to things that matter. Jesus, this is a reminder that you are a great king, much better than any king who's ever, ever, ever reigned. And God, you gave your life to serve. You gave your life as a sacrifice for us that we in turn would do the same with ours that we'd be committed to the things of your kingdom, not of ours. I thank you for how you're moving and working in our city, in our day, in our time, in the same way that you are working in the book of Esther. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.